0: Let me be the one to ask the question that perhaps you are thinking but afraid to ask because it certainly doesn't sound very spiritual. Are we making too much of a big deal about Easter? I mean, we know that Christmas has morphed from a one day, then a two day holiday to now an entire month of celebration. So I'm just asking is Easter heading in that same direction? Is it too trending? into a longer-term celebration. If it is, perhaps it's because we are so looking forward to spring. I mean, when Easter comes around, it is associated with the beginning of spring, and we are ready to shed off the doldrums of winter, ready to see the grass start growing, and the flowers begin to peek their head above the soil or begin to bud. I mean, we even have colors associated with spring. My wife reminded me last Sunday. She said, you're going to have to start wearing Easter colors. And you got that memo too. It's obvious. I mean, I thought colors were colors. I thought ties were ties. But apparently, Easter has a certain colors associated with it. It has to be bright and pastel to be appropriate. We go shopping for new clothes for the occasion. I mean, who would dare to show up on Easter Sunday without new clothes? Now, if I've just offended you, I want you to know these are not new clothes. I haven't bought new clothes for Easter in years, so nothing I have on today is anywhere close to being new. But it is a well-known tradition that for Easter you need something new. We attend egg hunts like we did yesterday, and probably some of you have other egg hunts to attend this afternoon with various family members. And then of course, there is the Easter basket. I surprised some of you last year by admitting that I still get an Easter basket, that my wife provides Easter baskets for all four of us, though I have not seen mine yet, because we're not all together until lunch, and so I get to see at lunch what I got for Easter. Speaking of lunch, the very thing that perhaps some of you are already thinking about, maybe that's why you're in this service, so you can get to lunch or finish preparing lunch. We have a big lunch to celebrate Easter. Ham is the traditional meal, but my family several years ago, actually several years before that, we were invited on a regular basis for Easter lunch by a family in this church, and they always grilled lamb on Easter. Well, that family has since moved away, And so since they moved away, we kept up that tradition. And so we look forward to grilled lamb on Easter Sunday. It's the big meal of the day and even of the week. Of course, there are multiple services to attend. As Scott mentioned, we had the last hours of Christ service on Thursday night, something we've done now for two years. And then a lot of churches do Good Friday services. And then there are sunrise services. And, of course, Easter services like we're in this morning. And clearly, without a doubt, as you look around, this is the largest attended Sunday of the year by far. And because of all of that, and surely no doubt more, I, I think it begs the question that I began with, are we making too much of a big deal over Easter? Now, if you remember my thoughts at Christmas... You remember I said that this past Christmas I was called a Grinch. I even got a Grinch mug to celebrate my Grinchness. All because I was not ready to start celebrating Christmas the minute we put down our fork from Thanksgiving dinner. I didn't want to start that early. And so I realize now I am in danger of doing the same thing as it pertains to Easter. Am I now about to put a damper on our Easter celebration so that you can not only call me the Grinch, but you can call me a bad bunny? (laughs) But that is not the path that I am going to take. In fact, I'm heading in the opposite direction. I'm gonna suggest to you this morning that I don't think we make a big enough deal about Easter because it was never meant to be a one-day holiday. It was never meant to be a a weekend celebration. It was meant to be a life-altering reality that we celebrate and recognize all year long. I did a series this past fall on what I call the first-tier doctrines of our faith, that is, those beliefs that are so foundational that we must believe in order to be Orthodox Christians. And naturally, I included in that series a sermon on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet it felt awkward to preach about the resurrection in October, because we are so well ingrained with the idea that Easter is the time that we preach about the resurrection. Well, because we do that every year, it's always difficult to find the right passage or The right sermon to preach because I'm expected to preach the same story every year. But as I looked at my preaching history, I realized that I had not used the classic passage for the resurrection of Christ, that is 1 Corinthians 15. I had not used that as my base text in well over a decade. So this morning, that is where we are going to be. You're going to need to keep your Bibles open because we're not going to read the whole chapter, we are going to read certain verses with each point. And so we'll go back and forth between reading the scriptures and explaining what is there. All of which to say that I want you to see this morning for several reasons that Easter really is a big deal. First of all, it is a big deal for salvation. Look at the first six verses of this wonderful chapter. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Easter is a big deal for salvation. Now, I like the way Paul begins this because he acknowledges that he is reminding them of things that he has already told them. And the reason I like that is because it frees me up. I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm not saying anything novel nor new this morning, but I am merely reminding the vast majority of us of things that we have heard in the past. But the fact is, we need such reminders. If we need reminders for our everyday activities on our calendars, certainly reminders are appropriate for these greatest of truths as it pertains to our spiritual lives. And so what is Paul reminding them and us of? It is none other than the basics of the gospel. And what follows is a succinct summary of what the gospel is all about. The word gospel, we use that a lot, maybe with, with a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding, but it simply means good news. It is a word that means the good news of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every one of those elements being essential for salvation because together they make up the basic definition of what that good news is. Now, Paul doesn't necessarily mention here the coming of Christ, but it is indeed implied. It is the beginning of securing salvation. And obviously that is something that we commemorate every Christmas. And then two days ago, we celebrated Good Friday. It is still a holiday for many people. Why, even the University of Tennessee let out from, for classes on Thursday and Friday. But of course, you know, they cannot call it an Easter holiday. So it was spring recess, which sounds an awful lot like spring break to me, but it is what it is, and I am digressing. But the point is, we celebrated the time when Jesus was crucified. And you might ask yourself, why would we celebrate such a thing? Why would we celebrate such a gruesome death and all that surrounds it? How can that be good Friday? And it is not because of the details of a crucifixion. It is not because of all the pain that Jesus went through. It is because of the purpose and the result of his death, not the details of how that death occurred. I mean, look again at verse 3. There is an important phrase here in verse 3. He died for our sins. That is the purpose. He paid the penalty for our sin, and in doing that, satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. As you well know, because you see this every Easter, there's always a a display of three crosses, because there were two other men who died beside Jesus, one on each side. But their deaths did nothing for us. Their deaths are only remembered because of their association with Jesus. They were dying for their own sins, and thus they were doing nothing on our behalf. But we know that Christ was sinless. He had no sins for which he himself needed to atone, and therefore he could atone for our sins. And so the purpose of the crucifixion is he's dying for our sins. And what is the consequence? Go back to verse 2. The consequence here is this is the the means by which you are being saved. Salvation for our sins and reconciliation with God is the result of trusting in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now, I realize the way that's phrased might trouble you. Who are being saved, that is present tense. It implies not only present tense, but ongoing action. And we, of course, have always been taught that salvation is in the past. That's why we say things like, I am saved, past tense. Or we say, I was saved when, past tense. And so when we come here, we might be just a bit troubled because this is in the present tense. But you need to understand that the Bible talks about our salvation in all three tenses. We were saved in the past, we are being saved in the present, and we shall or will be saved in the future. All three are biblical and all three are accurate. Now by saying that, it does not follow that we then can lose our salvation. Except in the case that we never really possessed it in the first place. I mean, notice the next phrase. By which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. In other words, it is indeed possible to believe in vain. It is possible to pray a prayer, be baptized, join a church, and attend Easter services, and truly not be saved. You can actually believe the facts of the gospel and not be saved because it is not mere mental acknowledgement of the basic facts that saves us. It is instead putting our faith and trust in Christ, which results in new life in Him. Such that elsewhere in Scripture, it is said that those who endure to the end will be saved. Again, that doesn't mean that our salvation is earned by our perseverance. It doesn't mean that because we endure, we have gained our salvation. It simply means that those who are genuinely saved will, in fact, persevere by the strength and the grace of God. Because those whom Christ saves, he also keeps. Now, the fact that the burial is mentioned here is a way of saying that this was a true and verifiable death. This was not a hoax by the disciples So that they could propagate the idea that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead when in fact he did not. They were not trying to deceive the masses. This was not a mistake on the part of the Romans. The Romans were not novices at crucifixion. They knew how to put someone to death and they knew when someone had died. And so this was not a hoax on their part. This was not a rumor that somehow grew larger as the days went by as rumors are wont to do. In fact, even as I was writing these very words this week, I got a text from someone whom I consider a reliable source. She, in fact, lives in my own house. And she informed me that there was something exciting going on in our neighborhood. She said the FBI was investigating one of our neighbors, that there were phone lines being tapped, that SWAT teams had been employed, All of this going on in our little Hannah's Grove neighborhood just up the street. And so I called someone that I know in our neighborhood. I texted several other people in our neighborhood to find out the truth. Turns out it was all just a rumor. None of that was taking place. And I don't know how stuff like that gets started, but I'm telling you it's not a rumor that Jesus Christ rose from the dead that just grew and grew such that we still celebrate it today because Paul says there were plenty of eyewitnesses. And that's where he heads to next. He moves to what is the topic of this entire chapter, and that is Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day. And this can be proven by the fact that he appeared to a host of people, including a crowd of 500. And he says most of them are still alive. Not now, but when he wrote it, most of them were still alive, meaning you can go ask them. If you want to know whether this was a truth or a rumor, Paul's telling the folks in Corinth, go ask somebody, because he appeared to hundreds of people. And ultimately, Paul comes to the fact that he had, it appeared to him as well on the Damascus Road. Somewhat of a different experience, but an encounter with the risen Christ nevertheless. So it is the resurrection that vindicated and proved all of the rest. In other words, if Jesus had not risen, then he is merely another in a long line of impostors whom the Romans put to death. And if that's the case, then we have no salvation. So I hope you understand that Easter is in fact a big deal, bigger than perhaps you might have thought. Because without the resurrection, there is no gospel, there is no good news, there is no salvation. Secondly, Easter is a big deal for faith. Look at verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. This is a big deal for our faith. I mean, it makes sense if it's a big deal for salvation, and we are saved by grace through faith, then it is also a big deal for our faith. So that if this were not true, then our faith in Christ is misplaced and indeed worthless. We often talk about faith in a, in a general sense, meaning you need to have faith in someone, you need to have faith in something, as if the mere presence of faith will sustain and guide us through our life. I mean, some even talk about having faith in themselves. I've just got to believe in myself so that I can have more self-confidence and therefore accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish. Others talk about the sincerity of faith. That is, it really doesn't matter who or what you believe in. As long as you are sincere about that, that's what's really important. But I've often said that faith is only as good as its object. If the object of our faith cannot deliver what it is we are putting our faith in, then our faith is worthless. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. If Christ is not alive, then your faith in him is in vain. If this one event were not true, then the faith of every professing Christian throughout all of history is nothing but worthless. And I'd say that makes the resurrection a very big deal. Now, the reason this is the case is multifaceted. First, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead on multiple occasions. And so, if in fact he did not rise from the dead, then his word cannot be trusted. He was either a liar or he was deceived himself. But either way, we cannot trust anything else that he has to say. So our faith in him is no longer valid. And then secondly, it is the resurrection that proves his claims and provides for the promises for our future, promises that we will talk about in just a moment. And Paul goes on to say that we too, would be proven liars. It's not just that Jesus would be a liar, but we would be proven liars and misrepresenting God as well because we've gathered this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And if the dead do not rise, then Jesus has not arisen. And then our celebration this morning is a lie and a misrepresentation. So that without the resurrection of Christ, the faith you exercise on a daily basis to help you overcome the obstacles and struggles in your own life is in vain and worthless. Without the resurrection, the faith you have that God will fulfill all of his promises are in vain. Without the resurrection, the faith that you have for your own salvation is no faith at all. Look again at the end of verse 17. Without the resurrection, you are still in your sins. This is a big deal because there is no gospel without the resurrection. There is no good news to share, and there is no faith in salvation in Christ if Christ is not alive. So it is a big deal for salvation. It is a big deal for faith. Thirdly, it is a big deal for hope. Verses 18 and 19. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is a big deal for hope. Hope is another thing that we cling to and desperately want. We want hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. We want hope that our eternity is going to be better than the chaos and confusion that we live in in this life. We want hope that our loved ones who have died before us are indeed with God in heaven rather than simply having perished and that we will see them again someday because we too place our faith and hope in Christ. And all of this hinges on the resurrection being a reality such that if the resurrection is not a reality, then we have no hope. One of the main things I do when I stand by a graveside and speak to the loved ones who are there is i try to give them hope as a result i often focus on the promises of god during this brief series reminding them of what god has said about our future and the future of their loved ones i sometimes talk about the finality of the cemetery as far as our vision goes that is this looks like the end And then I talk to them about how we can have faith in the promises of God. And therefore, it is not the end, but rather it is a triumph. I encourage them to grieve, which is normal. But in the words of Paul elsewhere, I encourage them to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And I remind them that they too can embrace the promises of God through faith in Christ. So we all want hope when we face death, which is why obituaries routinely say that so-and-so went to be with the Lord, or so-and-so is now in the presence of God, or so-and-so went to their heavenly home. But if Christ is not alive, there is no hope of any of that. Our loved ones are not in heaven with God. We will not see them again. They are merely in whatever grave we place them in or whatever urn their ashes are in. If Christ is not alive, that's all there is. And the same would be said of us someday when we die that that's it. Life is over. We all want hope in the face of suffering. We want to believe that there is a future for us and a purpose for the sufferings that we are enduring. This might be physical sufferings, or it might be the struggles that we go through in trying to minister to others. As most of you know, we've been in a series on ancient encounters. That is, we've looked at Old Testament individuals who have had an encounter with God. And last week, we looked at the Old Testament man by the name of Job. And immediately, you know that Job is synonymous with suffering. And oftentimes, and really throughout the whole time, Job didn't know why he was suffering. And yet in the midst of all of that suffering, listen to this verse. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job did not know the purposes of his suffering, but he knew that his Redeemer was alive, and that made his sufferings worth it. And it gave them purpose, even if he didn't know what they were. Our hope in a risen Christ can get us through such struggles. Paul is making the case here from the opposite side of things, saying that the point of all of sufferings are meaningless if Christ is not alive. Most of you know what Paul endured in his ministry for Christ. All kinds of things multiple near-death experiences because of his testimony to Christ. And so in verse 32, he says, I mean, what gain is there? If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus and Christ is not alive, then why did I fight wild beasts in Ephesus? Now, whether that's literal or figurative, we debate about that. Whether it means he literally fought beasts as the Romans were prone to do sometimes, that's probably not the case because... Most men didn't come out alive through that. So he's probably talking metaphorically about the crowd that he faced in Ephesus on his missionary journey there that wanted to kill him. But he says, if I went through all of that and Christ is not alive, then why did I go through all of that? There's no point in doing it. In fact, he gives the philosophy of life in verse 32 that many in America are living by and if they do not know Christ, this is the philosophy they ought to live by. He says in verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, then enjoy it as much as possible. If there is no resurrection, if Christ is not resurrected, which means you're not going to be resurrected, then you might as well get out of this life as much as you possibly can. As much enjoyment as you can fill up your life with and Solomon in Ecclesiastes came to the same conclusion let us eat drink, and and, and be merry for tomorrow we die live for yourselves get as much pleasure as possible because this is all there is and then we can go back to verse 19 and this point is summarized if in this life we have hope in Christ We we are of all men to be pitied. If this is all there is and we've placed our hope in Christ who is not alive, if there is no resurrection, then we are to be most pitied of anybody on earth. And so we've seen three of the most important things of Christianity all hinge on the resurrection. It's a big deal for salvation. It is a big deal for faith. It is a big deal for hope. Fourthly, it is a big deal for victory. Verse 20. The famous ending to this chapter, verse 54 When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a big deal for victory, both in this life and in the life to come. Most everyone I know wants to live in victory. We want our sports teams to be victorious. I mean, we we don't want them to lose, we want them to win. We even throw around a phrase sometimes, victorious Christian living, without perhaps fully understanding what that actually means or perhaps even being a little leery of it because those who use it most oftentimes do not have the best theology. I have a book in my office entitled Adrianisms. It is a book with the sayings of Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers was the longtime pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis where my wife grew up. And he had a way of saying things in phrases that were easy to remember and thus repeat. So here is one he had to say about victory in the Christian life. He said, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. The victory was won at Calvary. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Because the victory has already been won. And that's a good reminder. Because anytime we start thinking about victory, we think about what we must do. The effort we must put in. The battle we must wage. So even in victorious Christian living, oftentimes the concentration is on what we must do. That is, we must put away sin. And we must pursue righteousness and faithfulness. And make no mistake about it, we do need to do those things. And those things are indeed important. But what we are talking about today is ultimate victory and complete victory which then gives us the strength to live in victory while we are in this life. First fruits is an agricultural metaphor that might go over our heads because most of us are not farmers. But the Israelites were expected to bring the first of the harvest to the Lord as an offering. And it was a way of saying thank you. It was a way of saying gratitude or being grateful and understanding that it was God who had granted the harvest but it was also an acknowledgement that if the first of the harvest was good the likelihood was that the rest of the harvest was going to be good as well and so for us the connection is a promise Jesus being the first fruits Means that he was the first to conquer sin and death and the grave, thereby guaranteeing that those of us who trust in him will also conquer the grave. And that's why this chapter concludes with these famous words of victory Sin, which leads to death, has always been a great enemy. But now that enemy has been defeated. That doesn't mean that we no longer sin. We all know that painfully well. We do still sin, and we will face physical death unless Christ returns first. But spiritually, sin has been defeated, and death has been conquered by Christ, allowing us to join in his victory. And notice it says there that victory is not won by us. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's speaking of ultimate victory, while at the same time, it gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to live in victory today. And that is what we celebrate at Easter, that victory has been won, and we are on the winning team when we trust in Christ. And therefore, we can live victorious lives and ultimately conquer the grave because Christ has done that for us, which leads me to my final point which is this is not just about future promises, though those future promises are real and beyond our imagination. This is also a big deal for us today. And by that I mean not Easter Sunday and how we celebrate, but it's a big deal for us today in how we live our lives on an ongoing basis. And so the final point is this, Easter is a big deal for living. Look at the last verse in this chapter. Therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If the message of Easter only gets your attention one day a year, if the message of Easter only gets your attention one weekend out of the year, I want you to understand that you have missed the message of Easter. This last verse in this chapter begins with the word, therefore. And that means that Paul is about to sum up all that he's talked about in this chapter. And the vast majority of it has been not only the resurrection of Christ, but our resurrection as well. And he comes to this conclusion and says, therefore, this is how you live as a result. And how is it that we are to live? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Paul tells us. And the short answer is we are to remain steadfast in following and serving the Lord. Confident that whatever we do in his name is not in vain. Again, if Christ is not alive, then your suffering and your service is indeed in vain. But because Christ is alive, he redeems not only our lives, but he redeems our purpose so that what we do in his name and for and through him is not in vain. This is in stark contrast to what we saw earlier from verse 32 about the purposes of life. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's one way to live. But the way to live in light of the resurrection is to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I've been in ministry long enough now to know that sometimes we question whether or not it all matters. I visited a 97-year-old yesterday in the hospital. And he asked me, how long you've been doing what you've been doing? And I said, about 25 years, which paled in comparison to the 70-plus years that he had spent in the car business. But 25 years is still long enough to know that sometimes when you serve the Lord, whether it's in a pastoral position or a volunteer position in the church, sometimes You begin to wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my effort? Is it worth my money? Is all of this in vain? And Paul says, absolutely not. It doesn't matter how many years you've been serving the Lord. It is never in vain because Christ is alive. It's not a matter of whether you're good at what you're doing and say, well, it's not in vain because I'm really good. It's not a matter of whether you've seen all the results that someone else has seen. And if you haven't, then it must be in vain. No, it's not in vain because Christ is alive. And that's yet another reason why Easter is such a big deal. Because it radically changes the way we live and the purpose for which we live. Which again is why Easter is not a one-day celebration or a one-weekend celebration. It is a way of life. Some years back, and with fastest slang terms change these days, I know know I'm behind, so you can make fun of me if you want to, as my children often do, but there was a phrase some years ago with the four letters Y-O-L-O, YOLO. What does it mean? You only live once. And what it really means is live for yourself. You've only got this one life, so live it up. Find all the enjoyment that you can. And then that sort of morphed into no regrets. I want to live my life with no regrets. I want to look back at the end of my life and know that I did whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it and had the time of my life. And that phrase is probably not used anymore either because that phrase is going to change a 100 times in the next 10 years. But the philosophy of life will still be the same. If this is all there is, then get all you can out of it. But what if that philosophy is wrong? What if this is not all that there is? If Christ is alive, there is way more than this, way more that we cannot see. But frankly, I just misspoke. I said, if Christ is alive. But the fact of the matter is, Christ is alive, and therefore... Because Christ is alive, we ought to live this way. C.S. Lewis once said, die before you die. There's no chance after. Die before you die. And what he meant by that was die to yourself before you die physically. Because after you die physically, there's no chance of salvation. So have you truly trusted Christ this Easter for your eternal life? If you have... Has it changed more than just one weekend of what you do? It has to, because it really is a big deal. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning to celebrate the greatest news in history, that the tomb is empty and Christ is alive. But I do pray that that would not just be a One time a year celebration, but we would understand just what a big deal this is. How life-altering and eternity-altering this news really is. And so I pray that everyone who is here this morning or or watching online have embraced you by faith, not just a mental assent, but a true belief whereby you've changed their heart and life so that they are faithfully following and serving you, knowing that such service is not in vain all because Jesus is alive we pray in his name amen let's stand and sing